Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you so much for joining me today again. I hope you had a great day um, and you are looking at a great weekend ahead. Um, I really appreciate your support um, and I'm honoured that you take your time to listen to me every day. So um, on this podcast today we're going to talk about something the different, what is the similarity between Bharata uh, and Hindutva? Uh, now, I am talking in the context of the floods happening in Pakistan. Um, to give you a hint, okay, we see floods, 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 floods everywhere. Uh, one third of Pakistan is underwater. It's a desperate situation. Um... Uh, and I always talk to you about Atwa, all that lies in between Hindutva, the currents that form our waves, that is Hindustan. Why? So let's start with Bharata, my dear friends. Bharata comes from three syllables, Bha-ra-ta. So Bha, um, um, okay, it does mean, uh, it does mean land. Um, or it means, uh, it comes from the ancient word which means land, okay. Um, it was once a, a name of a king, if I'm not mistaken, but it does mean land. And the word um, Bharata is a Sanskrit word. Bha signifies a balanced feeling, means we are magnetic resonance, okay. So as a magnetic re re uh, resonance, we are frequencies, and our frequencies have to be balanced or aligned with the magnetic poles of the planet in conjunction with the geomagnetics of the ground. So your, your geography and geology of the ground is not going to be the same over here as it's, as it's in the United States or the United Kingdom. So your frequencies vibrate in conjunction with the geology and the ge geography of the ground. So your balance of your magnetic resonance or balanced feeling. Ra comes from the word raga signifying a melodious framework or structure which means again balance. So you have to have the rhythm and scale. Melodious in, uh, on the subcontinent means rhythm and scale. Your, your frequencies have to move not in, in friction or in uh, turbulence with each other but in, in, in a rhythm and scale in conjunction with the geomagnetics of the land and comes from what does signifying rhythmic cycle the cycle of it so we are cycle a geomagnetic cycle of the Indian subcontinent it is a huge vortex um, and the ability to balance that uh, cyclic uh, those cyclic frequencies um, with the rhythm and scale that is in conjunction with the land, the geomagnetics of the land, and the uh, magnetic poles of the planet is called Bharata. Now, that was very complicated for you. I'll repeat it again. We are, um, we are rhythms and scale. We are cyclic. Okay, like currents and waves, we are cyclic, but we are cosmic cyclic. That means that we are energy field. We all, everything from the earth, the mud, the sun, the, 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 the stars, the, the, Everything that's uh, material and 
and metaphysical, we're cyclic. And that cyclic has frequencies. We move in cosmic frequencies. Like any frequency moves in frequencies. Your breath is a frequency. Every time you breathe in, breathe out, it's a frequency. That frequency has magnetic resonance, and that magnetic resonance is cyclic. So we have to balance that magnetic resonance. And then balancing will come at a certain rhythm and scale. Very important to understand the rhythm and scale. And the rhythm of scale is in conjunction with the geomagnetics of the ground and the magnetic poles. If you do not understand that, you are going to be in turbulence, just like if you put on a radio. You will have turbulence if you don't get the frequency. So you have to have the correct frequency, balance it with the rhythm and scale, and the cycles will follow sweet, follow, and uh, obviously in conjunction with the land. So that is called Bharata for you. Okay? Um, it was the ancient, it's a Sanskrit word, and, and we also call it land. So basically it means land. And what is this land surrounded by? The land is surrounded by water, bodies of water. Um, from the Himalayas in the north to the Bay of Bengal in the, south, uh, in the east uh, to the Indian Ocean in the south to the Bay of Bengal in the west. We're surrounded, surrounded, surrounded by water. We are made of water. The human being is made of water. 70% um, of our body, if I'm not mistaken, approximately is water. Okay? So... We are all moving with water, our bodies are water, and we are uh, minute, minute particles, atoms, and molecules of water, okay, liquid. Um, and, and this together forms mass. Um, and we are moving in cycles, in currents and waves. Everything on this planet is cyclic. We're cycling. That is important. Um very, very important to understand. And uh, these currents of water, this water in ancient Sanskrit was called Sin, the Sindhutva. Sindhutva, okay? Sin means water and from that Sindhava, okay? Sapta Sindhava. Seven, seven rivers, okay? In modern linguistics, Sapta Sindhu. Sindhava became Sin and that became Hind. But it basically means water. So when we say Hindutva, we're talking about the water that lies between the, uh, the, the land that lies between the bodies of water. Very important. Hindutva, bodies that lies, the land that lies between the bodies of water. Bharata, the land that lies between these bodies of water. And the currents that form their waves. Once you understand the water that surrounds us, how to deal with it, the cycles and cycles of it, you will understand. Uh, you will understand um, everything that comes with it, how to deal with it, how to manage it, how to uh, use it. You can use the water for uh, electric generation, electricity generation. You can use the silt, the minerals that it's brought down. Uh, you can use everything that's, that's possible. 
um, very, very, very important. Uh, but if you don't understand it and you pray and believe in a God that comes from the sky, it's a false narrative. It means absolutely nothing and you will end into turbulence in which we are today. And that is why Pakistan is having these floods because they refuse, refuse, refuse to invest in understanding the land, the geography, and the geology of the land that is Pakistan. It's a beautiful land sitting in a very difficult situation, uh, geography, it is on the Silk Route and for thousands and thousands of years people have passed this land and built civilizations and, and um, cities and we have the Indus Valley city, civilization and even beyond, but why? Because there's so much of water in it, the water brings uh, from comes from the from the Himalayas, brings its silt and and minerals, and and deposits it on the on the land, and the land becomes fertile. The moment the land becomes fertile, you can grow you can uh, you can grow crop, and and fifty to sixty percent of Pakistan's economy is agriculture. They depend on it because of the leverage the leverage that they can use of the land. But you also have to know that the water comes with such force in, in cycles that if you manage it, you understand it, you can prevent this from happening. You can arrange your towns and cities around areas which will not get inundated and you can project in advance. Not pray to a God that's living in the past and it comes from the Sky because the sky doesn't do anything for you. It's the cycles of the land that is important. And that's why we say Hindutva. It is not a political ideology. It is a geographical and ge ge uh, geological uh, necessity to understand the currents that form our waves, that is Hindustan. The bodies of water that surround the land and her currents and waves. And this, my dear friends, is so important. One of the posts on Jeremy Corbyn's Facebook page um, um, talked about, oh, the, uh, he's a socialist politician. Absolute, uh, I, I can't, look, I don't have any liking for him whatsoever. I, have, I don't know him. I don't have no liking for him. So he, he put a post and saying, please help Pakistan, which is great. Fantastic, uh, fantastically great, um, um, and 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 I also am giving to to uh, I am on the verge of giving because I haven't found the uh, the people I want to give to as yet. Although I do have, um, I do have certain uh, links, but I, I want to give the links that are uh, secure. Uh, so I've not given, but I will be giving to the Pakistan aid, and it's important for all of you to give to this aid. Um, here's my issue. He, he's trying to. He put a clip on his. Uh, he put a clip on his, on his Facebook page, where the prime, where the minister, one of the ministers in in the Pakistani cabinet says, climate change is because of the West and they are part of the problem. They need to pay for this. This is what the Pakistan minister. Climate change is because of the West. That Pakistan is invested in terror. Pakistan is invested in population explosion uh, from 50 million in 1975, or was it 33 million? I'm not sure. 50 million in, in, sorry, in 1947 to 200 million in 19, um, 
200 million in 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 2022 that is i don't know how many for uh, that is a fourfold increase the population of the indian subcontinent was 396 million in 1946 1947 today we are 1.9 billion is that not a problem and I wrote on this page, I'm sorry, but the West is not a problem for us. It is sex that is the problem because we cannot stop having sex. We have such a huge population. We think that God is coming to save us and God and God and God and we pray to God, but God cannot save us because we are currents and waves. We are geomagnetic frequencies and cycle and we don't understand the cycle. We pray to a God that's useless um, in the skies because God doesn't come from the skies. It's the ground, the land that is important. And that's why we say Hindutva. That's why we say Bharata because understanding the soil, understanding the land, using its geographical geographical position geological pos positioning is very very important for a society and a civilization very important our ancestors knew that we do not know this and we have quadrupled in population now we say the west is the problem the china is the problem we say oh well uh, unemployment is the problem why is unemployment the problem because we've we've quadrupled in 75 years anyone has seen such a nonsense like this it's a disgrace and a shame but yet yet we've come to this point and we blame the west Typical, typical, typical. Before we can take call ourselves out as a problem, we point the finger to the West. Pakistan has invested, borrowed, and, and, and lied and borrowed money for 75 years from every single Tom, Dick, and Harry. Send them mafia around the world, invested in terror, destroyed Bangladesh, destroyed Kashmir, destroyed Afghanistan because Afghanistan is their fault. Okay? Its country was beautiful before in 1947. Karachi, someone said, was such a beautiful city. Even my parents said it. It was many people said Karachi was better than Bombay, uh, and 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 my parents said it was beautiful. They loved it. They 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 were not very appreciative of Bombay. They preferred Karachi, uh, and and they were so traumatized that you know politics divided us. And, and someone said, in Karachi in, 19, in the 1940s, they used to wash the streets at night. They used to literally wash the streets at night. And then the Islamic population took over. I mean, it was a mess. And you're telling me the West is responsible for this? The rest is responsible for the garbage uh, that we, we make? What happens if we don't have factories? What if happens if we don't... Uh, if, if we don't um, have jobs and and the the multinationals stop cut, cut down their factories what happens then there's no employment there's no employment people don't have work people don't have work no food no money no food no money no food guess what's happening you have civil war so do you want civil war like in afghanistan or do you want people to have factories the, pro the, the problem here is we've invested in population explosion, getting married, getting married, having children, getting married, having children, uh, population, 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 and guess what? And then we, when we have, we need, uh, we need factories to produce goods and services, produce jobs, we blame them.
at least stop stop blaming people and take your responsibility. Invest in uh, invest in the geology of your land, your geography of the land, by doing the balancing act, and not point fingers at someone else to justify your 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 failures. But unfortunately, people like Jeremy Corbyn cannot understand that, uh, and all these socialist gullible woke people are even worse. Uh, and and this, my dear friends, is the problem. But this is the similarity between Bharat. When we say Bharat Mataki Jai means we need to understand the land, the rhythm and scales of the magnetic resonance that forms this land and balancing it and understanding the currents that form our waves. So that is the similarity between Bharata and Hindutva. And I'm going to read for you a little book, my dear friend. It's a very important book that I hope that all of you will buy. It's written by someone called Sanjeev Sanyal. And Sanjeev Sanyal is... Um, it's an author from India. He's also um, he is also one of the chief economists at the uh, Ministry of Finance with uh, the Indian government. So very very interesting young man. A very good read. I hope you would buy his book. It's called The Land of Seven Rivers: A Brief History of India's Geography. Really nice book. Interesting books. Very simple book. It's not complicated at all for people who haven't bought it. Sanjeev Sanyal is extremely nice. A uh, uh, a gentleman, uh, very well articulated. Uh, you can see him on YouTube. You can see him. On, uh, I don't know if it's on Facebook, but very important. The land of seven rivers, my dear friend. The land of seven rivers. A brief history of India's geography. Uh, and her rivers are must read. And so I will read you a little part of it, and I hope that you will understand just an in introduction, maybe one or two chapters if I can have time. But if you can buy the book, it's not expensive. Please do buy it. It's on uh, Amazon. It's on, uh, you know, f any Indian uh, channel if you want. Uh, um, I will post a link to it. It is important for you to uh, to read and understand, and it will give you a better idea of who we are. Very, very simple book for people who are, who are not complicated at all. Um, you know, give it to your children as um, a gift for Christmas, Diwali. Uh, it is not expensive. You don't have your cup of tea or, or you know, this, uh, you know, drinks or nonsense for one month. Buy this book and you will be much better. You don't go to see one movie. Instead of watching a movie, I guarantee you that this will make you more intelligent than the movie that you spent. 300 rupees for a movie ticket. Guess what? Buying a book uh, on Amazon. Uh, buying a book, um, uh, yeah, uh, this book for um, this book for um, Sanjeev Sanyal, um, and it will really do you very, very good. Your children much better. Uh, let me see what it costs, okay? Because I'm, I'm telling you, this is fantastic. Land of Seven Rivers, Land of Seven Rivers. Sanjeev Sanyal, here we go. Uh, oh, six seventy-five. Well, two two movies, two movies completely, two movies. Um, and, and yes, you can definitely buy it. Okay, uh, he's got many many books uh, out there. Uh, I would suggest you to buy because he's a very nice author. So let's go straight to it. Okay, as we make our way to the second decade of the twenty-first century, India is undergoing extraordinary transformation. 
this is visible everywhere one looks. One, after centuries of relative decline, the Indian economy is reasserting itself. The result is an urban construction boom that defies imagination. Almost overnight, whole cities are being built. Now, nowhere, now, nowhere is this more true than Gurgaon, where I lived and I wrote this book, where there have been wheat and mustard fields till the mid-90s. Uh, there are now malls, office towers, apartment blocks, and highways. Even as I write these words, I watch yet another condominium block rise up. Boom towns like Gurgaon, however, were merely one of the facets that being experienced in India. Mobile phones and satellite television, combined with rising literacy and affluence, changed the dynamics of the aspirations of rural and small town India. Indian children of farmers are moving to the cities in the millions. Uh, all, by all accounts, India is likely to become an urban majority economy within a generation and its cities need to prepare the influx uh, of hundreds of millions of people. Existing cities will expand, new cities will rise, and villages will be transformed. The old days are clearly declining. Um, the economy, economic rise of India is to be welcome in a country that has long been plagued by poverty. But change is not without price. Natural habitats are drastically altered and often ravaged by activities like mining, sometimes legal, but often illegal. I am told that there are, there are now barely 17 or 6 tigers left in the wild. Dams and canals are altering the fortunes of sacred rivers, even as factories and cities empty their untreated waste into them. As urbanization and modernization churns the population, Communities are being torn apart, and with them, we are losing all customs. Traditions and oral histories. Many reminders of the country's history are being paved over by new highways and buildings. I am very conscious that we live in a time of rapid change. However, it is important to remember that India is an ancient land. In the long course of its history, it has witnessed many twists and turns. Cities have risen and disappeared. There have been golden periods of economic and cultural achievements, as well as periods of defeat and humiliation. Over the centuries, many groups have come to India as traders, invaders, and refugees, even as uh, Indians have settled in foreign lands. The country has endured dramatic change in climate and natural habitat. In short, India has been through all of this many times before. The scars and remnants of this long history are scattered over the landscape. If one cares to look, they will stay, stare back even from the most unlikely of places. New Delhi, the national capital, is a good example. It, merely, it is merely the latest in a species of, in a series of cities to have been built on the site. Amidst the frantic pace of modern life, the old Delhi lives in, an, in grand ruins, place, place names, urban villages, village traditions, and sacred sites. Even older uh, are the old village, uh, old ridges of the Aravali range, arguably the oldest geological feature on earth. Much has been written about Indian history, but almost all of it is concerned with sequences of political events. The rise and fall of empires, dynasties, battles, official proclamations, and so on. They are undoubtedly important, but I have little to add to, on, 
to what has already been said about Emperor Akbar's Mansab, Mansabdiri system or the morally minted reforms of 1909. However, history is not just politics. It is the result of complex complex interaction of a number of factors. Geography is the most important of these factors. Moreover, the relationship works both ways, just as geography affects history, history too affects geography. And that's why my, my friends, I always say, when you look at a situation, the most, I'm going to take time out of this book, the most important thing is geography, geology, astronomy, Three things that you have as a factor that you have to look when you're looking into a, a, a junction to make it an intellectual laboratory. Geography, geology, uh, history, uh, astronomy, and then economics, his, economics, politics, and history. Okay, that those six items together are the most important. Geography, geology, astronomy, economics, history, politics. Okay, the the third, the second three, any any uh, any sequence, but the first three is very important. So this book is an attempt to write a brief and electric history of India's geography. It is about change in India's natural and human landscape, about ancient trade routes and cultural linkages, the rise and fall of cities, about dead rivers and legends that keep them alive. Um, great monarchs and dynasties are still important to such a history, but they are, remind, they are remembered for the way in which they shaped geography. Thus, the book focuses on somewhat different set of questions. Is there any truth in ancient legends about the Great Flood? Why do Indians call the country Bharat? What do the epics tell us about how Indians perceive geography of this country? On the Iron Age... Okay, why did Buddha give his first sermon at Sarnath, uh, just outside the Varanasi? What is, was it, what is, was, what was it like to sail on the Indian Ocean, merchant ships in the fifth century, or to live in a life of idle, uh, idle playboy in Gupta era Paliputra? How does the Mughal, how did the Mughal hunt lines? How did the Europeans map India? How did the British build railways and across the subcontinent? The process of change still goes on, and in the last chapter, we will look at huge shifts uh, being caused by now process of urbanization and rapid economic growth. While the primary focus of this book is on history uh, of India's geography, the converse to is secondary theme that runs through the book. In other words, the book is also about geography the geography of India's history and civilization. One cannot understand the flow of Indian history without appreciating the, the drying up of the Saraswati River, the monsoon winds that carry the merchant fleets across the Indian Ocean, the Deccan traps that made Sivaji's guerrilla tactics possible, the Brahmaputra River that allowed the tiny Ahom kingdom to defeat the mighty Mughals and the marshlands that dictated uh, when the British built the settlements. Furthermore, the book will also consciously bring about the technologies from the nil-fired bricks, the shipbuilding of map, um, map making and the railways that have influenced the way we think in India. The very idea of India is physical geography and its civilization has evolved over the centuries. Yet despite all these changes, it is astonishing 
our Indian civilization. Habits have survived over the millennia. The ox carts of Harappan civilization can be seen in many parts of rural India, essentially unchanged for the for the rubber types tires. The Gayatri Mantra, a hymn composed over four millennia ago, is chanted daily by millions of Hindus. This is not just about longevity, but about civilizational ability to take along an incredible mix of ideas cultures and lifestyle that despite their apparent differences are still part of the overall patchwork. There are still remote tribes that retain a hunter-gatherer lifestyle that have changed little since the first humans entered the subcontinent. This is not just about lack of dwelling. The Centralese tribe of the Andaman Islands deliberately retained its Stone Age culture, ferociously resist outside contact despite repeated efforts by the government. Who are we to civilize them? There we are, they are right. On the persistent misconceptions about Indian history is that Indians are somehow never conceived have never conceived of themselves as a nation and consequently never cared about their history. Goodness. An idea was often repeated by colonial era officialdom for obvious political ends. As Sir John Starchery put it in the late nineteenth century. The first and most essential thing to learn about India, that there is not and never was an India. Half a century later, Winston Churchill would echo the same point when he said that India is a geographical term. Uh, it is no more a united nation than the equator. A, a corollary to this point of view was the argument that since Indians were never conscious of their nationhood, they did not care for their history or their freedom. Curiously, this colonial era idea had somehow remained alive. It is, not an it is not uncommon to hear people, even scholars, say that India, uh, Indians are an ahistorical people. As we shall see, this is totally incorrect. There is more than enough evidence to show that Indians have been conscious of their history and civilization. Indeed, from ancient times. Indians have gone out of their way to record their times as well as to create the linkages to those who came before them. Their sense of civilization continuity is so strong that foreign rulers, including the British, have repeatedly acknowledged the Indian civilization even as they have tried to give themselves legitimacy. Indeed, the British systematically drew on political symbolism of India's past. In front of the Rajpati, Rashtrapati Bhavan, in New Delhi, the presidential palace is a tall column called the Jaipur Column. It is a sandstone shaft stopped, uh, stopped by the Star of India. There are inscriptions on its base, conceived by Lord Irvin and Sir Edwin Lutyens. There are there reads as follows: in in thought, fate in words and wisdom, in deed and courage, in life service, so may India be great. The column was a gift from the princely state of Jaipur and was erected by the British when they built an imperial capital in the early decades of the 20th century. At the time, British had not, uh, the British may have not known that India would have become independent a few short years after they had completed the project. However, it is as if they were very conscious that they were inheritors of a very ancient imperial dream that would have been aware 
in that in the context of India's history, the period of British rule would one day become just a speck. Therefore, by erecting the column, they were determined to leave the stamp on their times. In doing so, they were following a practice that went back to at least the 3rd century. Delhi had several other imperial columns. One stand is that the 14th century ruins of the Feroz Shah Kotla. The column stand, stands erect, erect amidst the crumbling walls of the old palace. Complex, uh, obviously, to the cheering crowds of the nearby cricket ground and the swirling traffic of the ITO. The polished sandstone, sandstone shines as if it was put there recently. Yet these columns carry an edict by Emperor Ashoka from the 3rd century. It is one of the two Ashokan columns that Sultan Firoshat Tughlaq got transported with great care to his new city, uh, the New Delhi of its time. This is said to have been bought from Topara near Ambala, Haryana, and erected here in 1156 AD. The other pillar bought from Meerut stands near Bhara Hindu Rao Hospital on Northridge, a far from Delhi city, at the northernmost point of the Aravali range. The Sultan appears to have re realized that two columns were the old and represented a great imperial power. The one in, in Ferocia Kotla, it is said to have been carefully wrapped in cotton and silk and transported on a 42-wheel cart. Pulled by 200 men, finally brought by boat to its current location. The Sultan um, was very keen to know that the inscriptions said. He asked the local Brahmins to translate them, but the Brahmi script had been long forgotten and they were unable to help. It would be another five centuries before the script was deciphered. Yet another of Delhi's imperial columns is commonly known as the Iron Pillar and stands in the Qutub Minar complex of South Delhi. It is made of pure iron and is yet not rusted despite being exposed to the elements for 15 centuries. The inscription is dedicated to Hindu god Vishnu and tells us of the exploits and conquests of a king called Chandra, often interpreted to mean Emperor Chandragupta's Vikramaditya of the 5th century AD. Uh, the column was probably brought to Delhi either in the late 11th or 12th century and placed in the middle of the temple complex. The temples were destroyed by Islamic invaders, sorry, I added that, and replaced by mosques in the 12th century when the city passed into the hands of Turkish conquerors, that's written in the book. However, the pillar was allowed to stand. Why? Because the new rulers wanted to link themselves uh, to the past. Perhaps they wanted to overshadow it with their column, the stone tower of the Qutb Minar built to commemorate the victory of Islam. Over the centuries, the Delhi of Qutb Minar would be replaced by new Delhis, each built by an emperor who proclaimed, proclaimed a new era. The city we see today, we are decreed in 1911 by George V, Emperor of India. Official proclamation was read out at the coronation park for the far north of the city. It, it is the same spot where Queen Victoria has been proclaimed the Empress of India. Here too a column stands to commemorate the event. 
Again and again, we see our primordial imperial dreams symbolized by columns have survived over millennia. Whether Muslims or Hindu, Indian or British, successive rulers appropriated this idea and its symbols to strengthen their rule. It survives in modern India in this form of the Mauryan lions in the national emblem, emblem of, and the chakra in the national flag called Chakravartim, or municipal monarch. The founding fathers of the Indian Republic, too, were conscious that they were inheritors of very old civilization. The imperial dream is but one extraordinary continuities in India's ancient civilization. Some of them are overt and have many and, and many more lie hidden. Take, for instance, the radio, the ratio 5.4, which implies the length is a quarter longer than the breadth. The ratio is commonly used in the town planning of Harappan cities in the 3rd millennium BC. The city of Dolavira in Gujarat, for example, is 771 meters by 617 meters. Over a thousand years later, the same ratio appears in the Hindu texts like Shaptata Brahma and the Shubla Sutra that use the ratio as their precise instructions on how to build fire altars in, for Vedic ceremonies. Another millennium later, we see, find the same ratio mentioned in the Vastu Shastra text. In the 6th century also, the great scholar Vikram uh, Varamhira states that the king's palace should be, built, uh, should be built such that the length is greater than the breadth by a quarter. The Iron Pillar of Delhi mentioned earlier is also designed in the same ratio. The overall length of the pillar is 7.67, while the section above the ground is 6.12, a ratio of 5 is to 4. It is obvious that this ratio was considered special for a very long time. So even the 7th century Mughal emperor Aurangzeb wanted to praise his vassal Maharaj Singh. He called him Savai, meaning he was worth a quarter more than any other man. This title was used by Jai Singh's descendants till the kingdom of Jaipur was absorbed into the Indian Republic. Even today, a tourist visiting Jaipur will see a small flag fluttering over the royal, old royal flag. Uh, it is the extra quarter. It's a reminder that the old town planners of a reminder of the old town planners of Dolavira. It is appropriate, therefore, that Jai Singh is remembered mostly for town planning for the city of Jaipur. Not all the continuities of Indian history are linear. Some of them are circular. The Jews came to India as traders and refugees in the first century and settled along the southwestern coast. Among 2,000 years later, their descendants would return to the modern state of Israel. Similarly, Arab traders came to India in the Middle Ages to seek fortunes. From the 1970s, their descendants, the Mopalas of Kerala, would return in large numbers to their soil. The, the rich Arab states to work their distant cousins. Um, most interesting of all was the fate of uh, Timurid dynasty, better known as the Mongols in the 14th century. Timur Lame would capture Delhi and massacre its inhabitants of tens of thousands. His direct descendant, the last Mughal emperor Bahadur Shah Zafar, would watch helplessly as the British sacked Delhi in 1858. 
and put his sons to death. Of course, the history of India's physical geography is older than that of its civilization, or even of the, that of the human race. The subcontinent has been a distinct geological entity for millions of years. Therefore, to understand India, we must go back to the very beginning. So that, my dear friend, is what I call Bharata. The subcontinent is, um, is a vortex of water and land. All that lies between, all the land that lies between the water, Hindutva, the currents that form our waves, and the magnetic field and the force of energy that lies behind her, that controls everything on the top, not the God in the heaven. Uh, so that, my dear friend, was the introduction chapter of the land of seven rivers by, by, by uh, Sanjeev Sanyal. I will read one more chapter for you, the, of uh, the chapter one of genetics and tectonics. Um, and, um, and we will go from there. Or should I read? Um, no. And I'll let you read the rest, okay? So the Indian subcontinent was not always located where it is today, but was one at once attached to Africa and Madagascar. This is relatively recent history. Till the early 20th century, it was assumed that most geological features were due to the vertical rather than horizontal movements in the Earth's crust. Thus, the positions of the continent were considered to be essentially fixed. This was first challenged by the hypothesis of the continental draft proposed by Alfred Wigner in 1912 and expanded in his books The Origins of Continents and Oceans, published in 1915. He suggested that the present continents once formed a single landmass that drifted apart like icebergs. The hypothesis explained an observation that puzzled map makers like Ortelius since the 16th century. The fact that land masses, especially those on the opposite sides of the Atlantic, seem to fit together neatly like a jigsaw puzzle. Wigner's uh, arguments would have to wait for half a century before adequate scientific evidence could be found to support. In the late 50s and 60s, a great deal of new geological data provided that the Earth's crust was a patchwork of plates that were moving relatively to each other. This led to the modern theory of plate tectonics. This is very this is a very new field and our misunderstanding is evolving. Nonetheless, the broad contours of the story are now clear. It appears that most of the Earth's land mass was joined together a billion years ago in the supercontinent called Rodinia. It was probably located south of the equator, but there is still a great deal of debate about its exact shape size and where India's landmass fit into it. The supercontinent broke up about 750 million years ago and various continents began to drift apart. Very little is known about this period, loosely dubbed as the Precambrian period. Existing life forms were no more than a single cell organism like bacteria. However, there is one remaining relic from the Precambrian period that is still very, very visible. The Aravalli Range. It is arguably the oldest surviving geological feature anywhere in the world. The Aravallis were once tall mountains, possibly as high as the Himalayas. Are hundreds, over hundreds of millions of years, they have been eroded down to the low hills and ridges. 
Yet these diminutive hills have been witness to many important events of the Indian history. Not the northernmost point of the Aravallis in the North Ridge near Delhi University. Today, college sweethearts cuddle among the ancient rocks, obvious to both passerby and history. But the North Ridge was the stage of an important turning point to Indian history. It was here that a small British garrison held out in 1857 against a much larger force of Indian rebels and pounded the walls of Shah Janabad, which is now Old Delhi. The British eventually received reinforcements and stormed the city. Mughal Emperor Badu Shah Zafar was exiled to Burma and his sons were executed. Thus ended the Mughal dynasty. From Delhi, the Aravalis extended to Haryana. As I write, I can see how low rocky ridge holdings out against an onslaught of Gurugao's modern buildings. Sadly, these ancient hills are now being destroyed by indiscriminate mining. One of these worst examples of this can be seen on a side branch of the range near Jodhpur, Rajasthan. Asked to be driven to Balsamand Lake, an 11th century lake on the outskirts of the city, the lake is often dry these days due to the whole dis um, wholesale destruction of the water catchment area. Along its banks is an area of several square kilometers where the terrain has been gouged out by stone quarrying. The air is filled with the sound of drills and dynamite, the dust and smoke of trucks laden with stone. Not a single tree stands against the glare of the relentless desert sun. It is a vision of hell. Far south near the Gujarat-Rajasthan border, the Aravalis briefly lay claim to being the mountains rather than mere hills. The Guru Shikar Peak at Mount Abu rises 1722 meters above sea level. This is a sacred place of temples and legends. The Rajput warrior clans claim to, that their ancestors rose from, this, from a great sacrificial fire on this mountain. Not far from Abu is the beautiful lake city of Udaipur. This was once the capital of the kingdom of Mewar, which bravely fought the medieval invaders against impossible odds. The hills and valleys still ring with ballads of how Rana Pratap and his army of Bill tribesmen refused to surrender to the Mughals. Along, long before these events, however, the Aravalis witnessed a major shift in the evolution of life of the planet. Fossil f records suggest that around 530 million years ago, there was a sudden appearance of a large number of complex organisms. This is called the Cambrian explosion, although it still took, a million, took millions of years. Over the next 70 to 80 million years, we see an astonishing array of life forms evolve. Meanwhile, the continental landmass began to, to resemble, and around 270 million years ago, they fused into a new supercontinent continent called Pangaea. It is now thought that this cyclical assembling and breaking up of the supercontinents have always been part of the geological history of the Earth. A map of Pangaea would show, would show the Indian Craton wedged between Africa, Madagascar, Antarctica, and Australia. It was on Pangaea that the dinosaurs appeared 230 million years ago. My goodness, maybe we're descendants of dinosaurs. Uh, however, the Earth remained restless and Pangaea became to, came to break up 
around 175 million years ago during the Jurassic era. It first split into northern continent called Laurasia, consisting of North America, Europe, and Asia, and a southern continent called Gondwana. Uh, Africa, South America, Antarctica, Australia, Australia, and India. Note that the name Gondwana in itself derived from the Garnet tribe of central India. We now see a sequence of rifts in separate, that separate India from the neighbors. First, India and Madagascar separated from Africa around 158 million years ago, and then 130 million years ago, they separated from Antarctica. Around 90 million years ago, India separated from Madagascar and drifted slowly northwards and steadily northwards. A large number of dinosaur remains that have been found in the Rioli village of Balasinar took Taluka, Gujarat. The site was identified in 1981 and appears to have been a popular hatchery as thousands of fossilized dinosaur eggs have been found there. Fossilized bones have also been found, including those of a previously unknown predator that was 25 to 30 feet long and two-thirds the size of the Tyrannosaurus rex. The animal has since been renamed the Rajasurus Narbadenis, meaning lizard of king of of the Narmada. We have to put an Indian name to everything. Oh goodness. The site is now protected and is being converted into a dinosaur park. As the Indian Craton drift Craton dif- drifted northwards to towards Asia, it passed over the reunion hotspot, which caused an outburst of volcanic activity. Most of these eruptions happened in the western Ghats near Mumbai and created the Deccan traps. This is not the type of volcanic eruption that one associates with the perfectly conical Mount Fuji in Japan. Rather, it was more like a layer-by-layer oozing that created and stepped-flat top outcrops and that geologists call traps. The term apt for in the late 7th century, Sivaji and his band of Maratha gorillas would use the unique terrain to trap the and wear down the armies of the Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb. The volcanic episode did not last long, perhaps just 30,000 years, but it was dramatic, a phenomenon, and there are some scholars who feel that it may have contributed to the extinction of dinosaurs. Looking out from the Lord's Point at the hill station of Mathuran, one can clearly see the geological impact of the volcanic activity. Meanwhile, India uh, kept up its relentless northward journey about 55 to 60 million years ago. It collided with the Eurasian plate. The collision pushed up the Himalayas and the Tibetan plateau. What are now tall mountains were once under the sea which is why marine fossils are quite common high up in the mountains. The process is not over. The Indian plate is still pushing into Asia. As a result, the Himalayas are still rising about 5 millimeters every year, although erosion reduces the actual increase in height. The actual line of collision between the Indian and Eurasian plates is called the Indus Yarolung Tasampo Sucho Zone, the holy... Mansarovar, whew, Mansarovar Lake sits in the tough sits in a tara or true along the zone. Uh, that means a hole. True means a hole. Overlooking the lake is Mount Kailash, 
home of Lord Shiva, according to the Hindu tradition. Not surprisingly, intense tectonic pressure makes the Himalayas seismically, seismically unstable and prone to frequent and powerful earthquakes. Given the lack of vegetation, Ladakh is a good place to visually appreciate the impact of these geological processes. The broad contours of the above narrative of India's geological history are generally accepted. However, there remain many un unresolved issues and several findings do not neatly fit into the story. One puzzle relates to the discovery of the large number of insects preserved in the amber found in the Vastan, 30 kilometers north of Surat, a geological zone called Kambe Shale. It is a big finding that includes 700 species representing 55 families. These insects are not unique to India, but very similar to those found in other continents as far away as Spain. The problem is that currently accepted view about the northward drift of Indian Creighton would mean that the subcontinent would have been an isolated land for tens of millions of years at the time, where the insects emerged. So how did the insects get to India? It is possible that there were islands that allowed them to hop around from continent to continent. Perhaps the date of the India-Asian collision was earlier than generally accepted. Frankly, we really do not know. Nonetheless, India's relentless push into the a into Asian um, landmass continues, making the subcontinent technically very active. As we shall see in the next chapter, it's very likely that a tectonic plate diverted the course of a major river, with it the course of the Indian civilization. The danger still lurks. The 2005 earthquake in North Pakistan and Pakistan-occupied Kashmir registered a magnitude of 7.6 on the Richter scale, and the scale uh, claimed 80,000 lives. However, much more powerful earthquakes have been recorded along the mountain range. The Assam earthquakes of 1950 registered a magnitude of 8.6. It is one of the most powerful earthquakes ever recorded. Fortunately, the epicenter was in an area that, there, that was then relatively sparsely populated, and so it was killed, it's killed only 1,500 people. A similar earthquake is densely populated area would kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Given the tectonic pressures, it is only a matter of time before this happens. This is why the Himalayan range is one of the most dangerous places to build large dams. With the Indian plate wedged into Asia, among the Himalayas, the stage was set for the formation of the youngest of India's geological features, the Gangetic Plains. They started out as a marshy depression running between the Himalayas and the older mountain ridge called the Vindhyas. Silt brought down by the Ganga and its tributaries slowly began to fill up these hollow to create a virtual alluvian plain. Note that this process is so recent that the early humans would have witnessed it. We know that the Ganga repeatedly changed its course and shifted southwards, behind, uh, leaving behind oxbow lakes that are, can still be seen. The Ganga southwards drift was arrested only when it merged into the Vindhyas near Chunar, close to Varanasi. It is only the only place in the plains where the hill commands such a view of the river, making the Chunar Ford a coveted strategic location. It was once said that he who controlled the Chunar Ford also controlled the destiny of India.
A walk through the fort is a, is a walk to Indian history. The walls resonate with tales of the legendary King Vikramaditya. Uh, the Mughals, Sher Shah, Suri, and the Governor General, Warren Hastings. Uh, there are remains here from each era, including the 18th century sundial. Do not miss the neglected British graves uh, below the walls. Um, their headstones make for interesting reading. Just southwest of the fort are the quarries that in the 3rd century BC supplied the stones used by the Mauryans to carve the lions of Sarna, now the national symbol. We will return to them in chapter 3. So this, my dear friends, is the beginning of the book uh, for um, The Land of Seven Rivers. It's an interesting, fantastic book. I do understand. I hope that you would buy it. I am going to post a link uh, for it on my Facebook page. I think it's very important for you to understand this book um, and understand Indian geography, geology, and the Parata from the Hindu Kush mountains to the Bay of Bengal. Understand her geography, her geology. Um, yes. Um, her water, how her water waves run, the land of seven rivers, I mean, all the water, how does it flow, the history of the flow of these waters, of these rivers, the floods, the inundation, the water cycles, the, the, uh, the, uh, the climate cycles, very, very important. If you could get a hold of any of this, share it with your friends. Um, share it with your friends, and I'm telling you, it, you would do yourself a lot of justice as we say, Atwa, all that lies in between. And as we give thanks to uh, Lord Ganesh, whose festival we just celebrated, because he is the, the um, he is a deity which symbolizes the removal of all uh, evil, uh, uh, removal of obstacles. And the only way we can remove obstacles is that of... Uh, Knowledge, my dear friends, knowledge is the best way to remove obstacles. So uh, thank you very much for your time. I'm going to let you go. I've posted the link on my Facebook page. Do take a look at it. It is fantastic. The book and any book by Sanjeev Sanyal always is fantastic. Cheers, my friend. Stay safe until we meet again. Again, sorry, I forgot to say something. Um... I am on holiday for three days. I'm going to try and post something, but I will be back only on Tuesday. I cannot guarantee you I'll post in between, but if you do not find me, it's because I'm I'm taking a quick break and, and uh, yeah, I need a break. So <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm on a quick little break and we will take it from there and I'll be back on Tuesday. So thank you again so much for your time. Have yourself a great weekend until we meet again.